You're listening to The Capital Table. Private capital markets have been evolving for many years, but never more so than in recent times. Take a seat at The Capital Table with leading experts discussing insights into the private equity and M&A world, and take away the knowledge you need to excel in a rapidly changing marketplace. We know this is one table you'll leave feeling full and satisfied. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this episode of The Capital Table. Excited today to discuss ESG with my colleague and fellow advisory leader, Joe Holman. Joe, welcome to The Capital Table. Steve, thanks for having me. I'm Joe Holman. I am the ESG practice leader at Witham, and I help lead the charge of ESG for Witham's advisory practice, which means I'll help managers implement ESG in the pre-investment due diligence and engagement processes. So Steve, take it from there. Yeah, and again, thanks for joining us, Joe, as we discuss this with our private equity and M&A community. You know, and as we start talking about ESG, you know, there's a lot going on in the press right now. And let's start by, you know, let's discuss a little bit about the anti-ESG movement. And if you can provide any insight on that and how it impacts what you do. Well, thank you, Steve, for starting out easy. Yes, I appreciate absolutely. That. You know, let's go with the softballs in the beginning. Um, yeah, the anti-ESG movement really needs to be discussed. And it's a lot of fear-mongering. If you go back into the history behind it, um, it's quite interesting. This all really came out of Texas. So in Texas, there was a move anti there was an anti-oil movement of divesting in oil. And Texas took exception to this. Texas says that when you're not funding energy projects, energy projects don't get done. Energy projects, costs go up, jobs go away, and the cost of everything goes up. So they thought of this as a job job, um, issue, and they passed a law that said it is against the law for pension funds of Texas to invest in companies that divest in oil and then they threw guns in there. I don't know where guns came from, but you can't take that from oils and guns. And they attacked BlackRock. And that's where BlackRock got into the picture because BlackRock was divesting from oil. So with that, DeSantis came into the picture. Now, DeSantis was thinking about running for president, which no longer he's doing. And he attacked Disney because DeSantis passed a rule that you can't say gay, or that was the media called it. And it became a big thing against Disney and DEI and critical race theory. So they all attacked that. And that type of movement got DeSantis very popular. And he saw what Texas did. And he passed a rule called uh, the anti-ESG movement where you can't have ESG policies uh, within your investment process. And 24 other states, I think that's the number, Pass that same rule. So you think about it, it says that you can't use ESG. So you think you're dead in the water from an ESG standpoint. That's the press. But the reality it is, and I'll read you the general text out of the side letters, which I hate reading. And if I mumble my words, I'm sorry, is investment managers agree to evaluate investment decisions based on pecuniary factors. Pecuniary factors do not include the consideration of the furtherance of social, political, ideological interests that sacrifice investment return or take additional 
investment risk to promote any non-pecuniary factors. So basically what they're saying, and that's that wording came right out of a side letter from a, from a private equity fund. And they're saying that you cannot use social values in your investment process if it reduces return or increases a risk profile. Nothing we do here or discuss today will use social values or any other types of values to affect returns. In fact, our goal is not to reduce returns, but to increase returns or not affect them at all. So that is the movement of the ESG uh, anti what we have to say. Um, one other thing to note in this movement is because of all this anti-ESG, a lot of firms are dropping ESG label and you're going to see that go away. I saw Alborn just got rid of it. And what they're calling it now is sustainability. So we're literally going into documents and doing uh, find, change, replace ESG with sustainability. And everyone's okay with sustainability. ESG, not so much. And then to help it out, um, a lot of the investment policies use a term called responsible investment. And again, we don't call it ESG. So most firms are cleansing themselves of ESG, calling it sustainability. And the rest of this performance will be on sustainability due diligence. <laughs> yeah, it's fantastic, John. Really great, great insights into, you know, this anti-ESG movement. And I know certainly from working with you on deals and seeing the technical things that are in it, which we'll dive into in a moment. You know, it's, it's really some, you know, very positive things for the investment, for the company, and, you know, certainly broader uh, positive implications. So great to address that. And, you know, I may throw another curveball or two at you, but I'm glad we started with the uh, the hard one first. But although the next one's not maybe much easier, because I think, you know, with that, you ask 10 different people to define what ESG means to them, you get 10 different answers. And I think part of it for our audience is just framing what does this mean? So, you know, how would you define ESG? Well, we're going to look at ESG from an M&A due diligence standpoint. And as we said in the beginning, starting the anti-ESG movement is we're about creating return, reducing risk. So from an ESG, M&A due diligence, we're not about creating diversity at the companies we invest in. We're not about making the planet a greener place to live. We're not stopping oil. We're not investing. We're not divesting from guns. <laughs> we like taxes. We're not trying to save the whales. What we are doing in ESG and the way we define it in the investing community is we're using it to find additional sources of risk and opportunities that may not be identified during traditional financial due diligence. So if you think about it, what we're trying to do is identify additional sources of information to make an investment decision on. So if you choose not to use ESG, you choose not to have this additional source of information. Um, but the main problem we face in ESG is it's really defined by how it's used. So the newspapers use it and they bash it and they think about the impact and they think about, you know, again, diversity in the way Ron DeSantos thought about it. But that's really not the most common way ESG is used. ESG is used the way the M&A guys use it. And in fact, over a hundred trillion dollars, that's trillion dollars of AUM 
is used by investment managers in the investment process. So that's a real number created uh, that's collected by a group called PRI. So what you're reading about in the newspaper about ESG and how maybe it's declining or how it's not relevant is certainly not true. And you can see a lot of investment managers put a lot of stock in using ESG to identify those additional sources of risk. And that's really what we use for in the M&A process is looking for risk and opportunities. Yeah, that's a great point. And, you know, you think about stepping back from, um, you know, financial due diligence, which all of a sudden everybody uh, calls it quality of earnings, which kind of takes away from the the focus on the diligence. And that it is about helping to identify risks and opportunities in a deal. And it's a great point, Joe, that, you know, ESG is just another extension of identifying risk. And certainly the diligence process has become more extensive at a macro level, you know, over the last, you know, 20 years uh, and, and longer, obviously. But, you know, with that, we'll, we'll dive into diligence in a little bit. But, you know, let's kind of stay on this, this global view of ESG and talk about climate change. And if you're a buyer of a business, you're looking to invest or you're a seller looking to, to exit your business, you know, how should they think about the issue of climate change, regardless of their personal or political opinions on the matter? Well, first of all, don't buy an apartment, you know, in the hurricanes um, <laughs> without insurance. Um, but climate risk is really what we think about when we think of climate change. Climate change, the climate's been changing for 5 billion years. But as an M&A guy, I would think of risk. So what risks do I face? And if you don't believe it's real, just ask any insurance actuary whether they consider climate in their risk models when creating premiums. So the insurance companies actually really understand climate risk because they model it out. And if you're in Florida and you're paying insurance, you're aware that premiums go up significantly. Um, so backing it up, climate, climate is generally reported on and measured you know, there's a term called TCFD. Forgetting what it means, um, it was created by Bloomberg and it's a framework for reporting on climate. So institutions use the TCFD framework to collect information and evaluate climate risk and modeling for mitigating those risks. So TCFD is something that Michael Bloomberg created. And it's a flame framework for measuring climate and climate risk. And it's made of four elements. And one of the elements is metrics and considering the risks associated with those metrics. And those risks are physical risks, um, transitional risks, and regulatory risk. So let's just think about what those risks are and how they affect an M&A purchase or seller. So you're buying into a property. You're looking for a financial exposure to climate risk within your investment time horizon, which is really important. Because if your time horizon is 20 years, your risk is significantly more than if it's one year. So one year, you can pretty much roll the dice and hope nothing happens. 20 years, statistically, it'll probably happen. So first one is physical risks. So you have extreme weather events, which are hurricanes, floods, which California, New York, 
Florida, the coastal city, uh, states know about fire, flooding again, extensive droughts, which is in the middle of America, and there's other physical risks. And the businesses most affected by these risks are physical businesses or businesses of physical activities. So if you were in Sonoma County last year when it was burning down, you weren't able to do your business as a hotel operator. That was a physical risk. Uh, in New York City, you know it's going to flood in certain parts of New York City. That's a physical risk. Florida, you have hurricanes. Now, the way you mitigate these risks, typically from an M&A standpoint, is you look to see what's the insurance. Insurance is typically your first line of defense in mitigating loss of um, access to your property, loss of the property itself, or inability to service your customers. So, but insurance is something that isn't going to always be there. And as I mentioned, in Florida, insurance companies are pulling out or doubling or tripling their rates. And I've spoken to deal guys who said that a deal one year made sense, but because of insurance and their inability to get insurance, um, it no longer makes economic sense to make that deal. Um, other types of risks that people should consider, though, is actually looking to see where businesses are located. And this is what we'll do from a ESG due diligence is we'll look at floodplains. And I'll give you an example. And now I'm not, this isn't a deal that I'm aware of, but living in New York City, they're building these hotels, housing, and a stadium next to LaGuardia Airport. And if you look at the floodplain of New York City, that is like all blue. So it floods every year and you know that area is going to flood. So they're building these apartment buildings, these stores, malls, and soccer fields in an area that will flood. And it's going to flood more and more every year. So that's a business risk. So they're looking to raise economic capital. Where's that money going to come from? Investors like you. And those investors need to figure out how are they going to mitigate that risk from floods? Because it's going to happen. You're going to have damage. You're going to lose if you're a mall. You're not going to have traffic. If you're a business, you're going to have, an un you're not going to have access to your business. So that's something to consider. And that's what we look at from a physical risk standpoint. Uh, but again, it's really insurance is your first flood, your first line of defense, resilient properties and whatnot are your second ones. That just means your properties can stand should the rest of the world burn down. Um, the second type of risk, transitional risk, is important to consider. So transitional risk is changes in consumer preferences and changes in the economic landscape. So you're making plastic straws and or plastic bags, and the state is transitioning away from that. How is that going to affect your uh, modeling? right? Your CAPM model, you project cash flows out for the next five years. How is that going to happen when one of the main products of the company is plastic bags sold in New York, which are no longer allowed to be sold? So you got to factor that in. Other types of transitional risks we've come across is we work with a company down in Austin. There's a big mall company buying, you know, the mall is being bought. Um, Austin is projected to have twice as many 100-day degree days in the next five years as they had in the last 10. So it's going to be a lot hotter down there. How do you handle Heat means you're going to need air conditioning. The air conditioning needs to be more robust. 
So you're the buyer. One of the things you would look to is have engineers look at that air conditioning and see whether it's robust enough to handle the higher temperatures at the number of days. If it's not, again, it's not going to break the deal, but it's something that you would consider in terms of a concession maybe from the seller to put new air conditioning in. Because you know, after you close the deal, it's the old expression, you buy it, it's yours. So consider that. And the last part of climate is regulatory risk. So you're buying a company and there's in Europe, for instance, where there's a movement against emissions and you're a high emissions creator. You've got to consider how are you going to address the changes in the regulatory landscape in terms of, say, taxing carbon or or carbon import taxes or just plain um, being lined up against other industries that are low carbon and consumer preferences may shy away from you. So considering the regulatory risks in the next five years is important, as well as one last point is that when you're buying a company, do they have the infrastructure in place to address that risk? Do you have, I mean, when you buy a company, they have a finance group, they have a compliance group, but do they have a way to address financial reporting on the European horizon? In the U.S., it's not that significant, and it probably won't be for a little while, but in Europe, it is significant, and it could be a significant economic cost uh, on a go-forward basis. Uh, I'm going to say the last part of my climate to consider is opportunities. And when looking at companies, certain companies can take advantage of the negative sentiment towards climate change, and they can look to take capitalizing on the movement of the U.S. economy and the world economy to a low-carbon environment by creating goods and services that appeal to consumers where climate matters, to appeal to governments where climate matters. And those are opportunities in which they can capitalize on. And those types of opportunities could create premiums in terms of purchasing and selling a company. Well, that's a fascinating way, Joe, really to sum up risk and opportunities because that's what, you know, the diligence process is all about. That's what we on the transaction advisory side are working day in and day out with our clients to help them look at the the risks of a deal, the opportunities and what the situation is. And, you know, really fascinating examples on those opportunities. So thanks everyone for joining us on this episode of the Capital Table. Uh, the first of two parts on this really, really important topic of ESG, which is becoming more prominent in the private equity world. Uh, we'll explore more about the due diligence aspects of this with Joe on episode two of this mini-series. Thanks for joining us again, Joe. Thank you for having me, Steve. You've been listening to The Capital Table. For more information, please visit witham.com. Thank you for listening.